HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Everyone talks about a restaurant's opening, but what about the takedown? We've got Chef Chris Jekyll on the line for our final episode on endings. It's Monday, April 3rd, and this is Love Bites Radio. Welcome to Love Bites, coming at you from Heritage Radio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Jacqueline Raposo. I'm 35 and single, and you can find me as at WordsFoodArt. And I'm your other host, Ben Rosenblatt. I am 34 and in a relationship. You can find me as at BenRoseNYC. I'm so glad you're here, It's Benjamin. so good to be here in it's, your home. In my home. It was a lonely two weeks in my home recording these. Actually, all right, it wasn't lonely. I had the ladies of our chronic illness episodes in my ears joining me, but I I'm glad that you are here. So we have one final weirdly recorded show for y'all out there. It's so, not that weird. Well, I just mean the sound the sound level. David did help clean this one up a little bit for me so that I would not obsess on Adobe Audition quite as much this week as I have before. I know as soon as you leave, as soon as you leave, I'm cutting like a maniac. But um, so because for this episode, I really wanted to get Chef Chris Jekyll on the line and we just had some scheduling issues as far as getting uh, us all bodily into the studio in Bushwick. So I got Chris on the phone and I had a great conversation with him and now Ben and I are going to listen through and chat about it, chat about endings because I met Chris a couple years ago while he had his restaurant Alanda, which is a Japanese-Italian hybrid 
in the East Village. Which is so fascinating. I know me. it is. He's, cool he's fascinating. He's just a lovely human being. And he also owns Uma Tamakaria, which is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things in the entire world. If you've looked on my Instagram or Twitter feeds, you have seen how often I've eaten there, sometimes twice in one day, when I've been downtown on the intersection of 14th Street and 7th Avenue. So I got Chris on the line to talk about closing Alanda in 2016. But, Ben, why don't you give a formal introduction to him? I'd be honored to. Thank you. Chris Jekyll is the co-founder and executive chef of Uma Tamakaria, the nation's first fast-casual-style eatery featuring fresh, customer-designed tamaki, cone-shaped hand-roll sushi. Originally from Long Island, he worked at Tabla, 11 Madison Park, Mirimoto, and for the Altamarea Group, where as chef de cuisine at I Fiori, the restaurant was awarded a Michelin star, as well as a three-star review from the New York Times. In 2013, he opened Alanda, heralded as one of New York City's 11 best restaurants of 2014 by Thrillist, and where he was named as Eater's New York City Chef of the Year. Two and a half years later, Alanda closed. That's the story we are going to hear today. So before we get to what encouraged you to close, Alanda, can you describe what was feeling right about the restaurant around the time you started thinking that you'd need to close? What was feeling good about the food and your clientele and your work as a chef? First, I worked for quite some time. Um, I would say that the feeling the most good about was the message we were sending, right? We were doing something that was, from my perspective and educational perspective, something that wasn't really known to people or something that was not familiar, right? We were doing this Italian and Japanese sort of combination. Now there's a couple of other people that are starting to explore it, but I don't think anyone was exploring it from an educational standpoint. And, and I and I was pretty proud of that, and I continue to be pretty proud of it. So I'd say that that's what I was the most enthusiastic about. The other side of it was we, you know, the critical acclaim was pretty strong. You know, we got a great, we got a great group of reviews, you know, which was, which was meaningful for my team and for me. I was very proud of what we had accomplished and the number of people that have come in and enjoyed the restaurant and continue to repeat, come in and enjoy the restaurant. And my team as a whole, you know, openings are hard and I certainly lost a few employees, but, but a great deal of retention. Um, I was one of, I think I was one of the only people that I had a conversation with. After the first year, that wasn't like, oh, my God, I need cooks. You know, I was in a position where I wasn't losing people, and, and that made me very proud. And I went an entire year, I think, with only hiring one line cook, which is virtually unheard of in New York City. That's, a, that's another one I'd say I'm very, very proud of. So when did you start thinking that you might have to close the restaurant? What started happening that made you think that it was no longer going to be sustainable? I would say about a year and a half into it. You know, we had some plans to do a couple of other things and, and one of the big one of one of those big things didn't end up happening, which was us trying to grow a company and do a second have a second deal which would have provided income into it. So it was sort of, you know, if that one wasn't doing wonderfully and that happened, then it would have said, Okay, that's fine, we're still making money even if this one isn't sort of scenario. So when that deal ended up not happening, that, that sort of took some of the wind out of my partner and my own sales, right? We sort of said, okay, you know, this is this is not continuing to be sustainable and we don't have another channel to go through, so so we need to start considering this. Can you break down for me what felt like it wasn't sustainable? Was it cost of food or rent or the environment that you were in? What bits and pieces were not going to be able to be floated? Um, I mean, I could talk about this for 
I have a thousand different reasons why I, I think or think it could be. Um, you know, ultimately, everyone blames restaurant closures on, you know, their rent or or staff staffing problems or all that sort of thing. And ultimately, it's it's a volume problem. If the restaurant's busy enough, you can absorb things in, in any business. And, and so, ultimately, in my, from my perspective, volume is everyone's problem. It's not necessarily, you know, the, the, all of the other factors that people will decide to blame them on. The real conversation of this is ultimately the operators are the reason why the volume is a problem, right? And that's taken some time, and, and it's difficult to sort of admit that. But, I, I, you know, I was a problem in some ways, and so were my partners, and so was my staff, and, and all of those things. And ultimately, we didn't provide a service to people that caused them to want to come back over and over again, right? And tell all their friends they need to come in, and, and that's hard to admit to, but it's just real, right? And I don't... Yeah, I don't know what the, I can't put my nail in the head as to what that is, but ultimately boiling it down, what we didn't do was provide something that people deemed worthy to spend their money on. That's it. Was it the decor? Was it weird that people walked down three stairs and up another flight of stairs into the dining room? Subliminally, I think so. Like, there's lots of little things that we could talk about. There was lots of construction on 13th Street. I think the restaurant was too fancy for the 30,000 college kids that walked up and down our block every day. It was tons of foot traffic. I think none of them had any, wanted to come into our restaurant. It looked too nice. I think that's something we got wrong. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that we could have, we could talk about, but we also did so many things right. The reviews and the quality of food and, and the treating our staff and the retention of that staff. And we did so many things right as well. So, you know, harping on the negative, I think, is there. But we didn't provide a service that people wanted to continue to come back to at least enough of them. There were plenty of regulars, but we didn't provide it to enough people that wanted to continue to come back. And we didn't create an experience special enough for them to say, oh, you, got, you have to go try this, right? That's that. I mean, it's that simple, I think. At the time, did you contemplate reconfiguring different aspects of that, or would it have been too much of reinventing the wheel that you didn't want to do because you were well-received for the work that you were doing? We had lots of conversations about it, sure. What, what could we do in the bar? And, you know, we tried certainly doing something more at a lower price point at, at lunchtime to sort of see if we could get the, you know, all the students that were on the street in. We certainly tried. I don't want to imply that we didn't. But from my own stubbornness, you know, I sort of dug my heels in regarding the Japanese-Italian thing. And, and, and that might have been a mistake. To get me to, to scrap that entirely was something that I was unwilling to do, at least in that building. So, you know, we have lots of conversations. Do we go more Japanese? Do we go more Italian? Do we put banquettes in the downstairs? Do we change the seating? Do we? But ultimately, my partners and I couldn't come up with something that made us both happy. You know, ultimately, this turned into a portion of it was deciding that, it, like, the relationship wasn't working also. It wasn't, the restaurant was not making money, clearly, right? But, but it was losing money to be completely open. But we couldn't come up with something on both sides of the, the aisle that made us each happy, right? And that was the decision. You know, we sort of said, okay, guys, we're not, your ideas aren't working for me. My ideas aren't working for you. Like, it's, t- it's time to stop giving this a try. Right? And that was that was a really, really hard and difficult decision. So can you describe to me what the process of closing the restaurant from the literal taking apart of, you know, the seating and the bar and the kitchen to the letting go of your staff to the knowledge that uh, press and your clientele were going to hear about the closing, all of those little bits and pieces. What did that feel like to you as the chef and partner who had built this thing that you loved so much? What do you remember about that? 
Well, the last couple of months were easy, to be completely honest with you. And that was because I ultimately was the driver of this decision. I had made my choice. I went to them and sort of said, guys, I've decided that this is not something that's working for me or us. I mean, the process was not easy. I don't want to involve like, oh, sweet, this is going to be awesome. No more alone, though. That's not the case. But the four months leading up to that, I told my partners that it was the most difficult decision I've ever made in my life. I mean, more so than getting married or more so than buying an apartment or, you know, it was just something that when you invest so much emotionally into it, it's it's, it's hard. You know, it's it's something that no one prepares you for how emotional, either positive or negative, putting everything on your shoulders is going to be. You know, you, you, there were lots of highs and there were equally as many lows, and that's just sort of what it is. So specifically, I will say that the hardest part was figuring out a way to find homes for the people I cared about. That's the that's the most important and the most difficult thing I, I think I can I can say is, you know, looking at people at the restaurant slowing down and sort of saying, okay, so I don't have time for you. What? You know, what can I do for you? What type of food do you like? Where can I help you end up? I sent someone to Gramercy Tavern. I sent two people to see Floyd at Powella, and they both were there, you know. And that was nice for me to be able to continue to help them, but it was hard for me to sit down with these people that I cared about. And then after I sort of started having those conversations, I then, you know, had other conversations with people that I thought would help and had the desire to stay with me until the end because I can't operate it by myself, obviously. So I think that was the hardest part of it all was was sitting down and having these open conversations with the people that look up to you and tell them that you're a failure. I mean, that's the harsh words, right? I don't consider myself to be a failure by any means, but those words and those thoughts go through your head, you know, and sitting down and talking to these people that look up to you and respect you and telling them that it's all over was really, really hard. It was harder than any of the other things. Like, you know, we talked about my personal life and my health. Like, once you make the decision, you just, you pick yourself up by the bootstraps and you move on. But talking to these people... And opening up to them and having a conversation about what you can do for them and why it wasn't working and was the hardest part of it all. And, and I was, will say that I was lucky to be in a scenario where you know, our purveyors got paid. We were smart enough business people to say, this isn't working. How much is in our coffer? Okay, we need to make this decision. And we, so we're not screwing people over. So the rest of it wasn't really that hard. It was just the conversations with my staff that was the most painful. So Ben, one thing that catches me about that last question Chris answered was how even though he made the decision to close the restaurant, the conversations weren't easier necessarily because of it. How does that hit you? The only way I can frame it for myself and the only experience I have having similar conversations is in relationships that I've had to end over the years. So you've um, ended the relationships. I mean, I've been in both cases. I've been right. the dumper and I've been the dumpy. But in the cases where I've been the the dumper, similar to what Chris had mentioned, like, yeah, there is something that's a little bit emotionally more easy about it at the end because you're the one who made the decision. But the conversations are hard because... For me, at least, I feel like a bad person, and I feel like a villain to some degree. I feel like I'm the one who, we had this contract, we take care of each other, and we do the things that are going to be, you know, I'm looking out for my partner's feelings, and I'm supposed to treat them the way they, that I expect to be treated, etc. And then you kind of have to, at the end, break that contract and hurt them. And that feels, is really hard, and it, 
ultimately is you're the one who's making their life worse. Do you feel like more of a failure when you're the one who's made the decision and ended the relationship versus you're the one who's gotten dumped? Good question. Thank you. I tend to blame myself for everything. And so I think in either case, I kind of like, you know, I'm flagellating myself for it. I feel like if Vitor or David were here, they'd do a wah-wah. <laughs> well, thank you for right giving me with your voice. <laughs> well, after the break, I'm going to put a little pressure on Chris to uh, give more explanation as to how he felt and the word failure. Um, so when we come back, you've got that to look forward to. Fantastic. I can't <laughs> wait. It sounds like it's going to be very uplifting. But before we get to that, we're going to take a commercial break. We want to remind you that this is the last week you can support Robbie Gill's double vinyl album. You're hearing some sweet tunes from him today. So we are sending out a tweet right now, and there is more information about how to find him on our website, lovebitesradio.com. If you've been with us since the beginning, Robbie was our very first theme song, and we love him to death. So please check that out. If you are listening to us on heritageradionetwork.org right now, we'd love for you to drop a few bucks our nonprofit team's way. And if you are listening to us on iTunes or Stitcher, we'd really appreciate a little five-star review um, and a couple of kind words. They are the best way for us to go up and up in the search engines. And so we'd love, love, love you for that. So sit back, hear a few words from our sponsor, and we will be right back. Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. So we are back with Chris Jekyll and an interview I recently did with him over the phone. Before we started recording, Chris and I talked about our health issues. He's had brain surgery in the past, and obviously I have a history with chronic illness. And so we discussed the idea of picking yourself back up and moving on after really shitty stuff happens to you medically. So I asked him what he does to get himself off the floor, hypothetically speaking, after a big failure either in work or romantically. And here's where we picked back up in the conversation. In general, and I've seen this in my personal life, I think it was a maybe a chapter in, in Stephen Colbert's book that was like, sometimes you need to face it, bad things happen to good people, right? And that's just what it is. So, so you have to look at it and you have to decide what you're going to do and, and how you're going to turn that into a positive. I read quotes and I, and I pay attention to them and I write them down. You know, another one was like, learn to work with negatives to make for better pictures, right? It's something that you start with something that's called a negative, right? And it creates something that can be of pure beauty, which is a picture, right? So I think that that's just something you need to learn through emotion and through life to sort of push on through. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a, a way to 
instill that, I think that's a trait that you possess or you don't possess, which is, I don't know whether that's helpful or unhelpful, but I think that people that succeed are the people that look at scenarios that are hard on them and pick themselves up by the bootstraps and move on. And I was very fortunate and unfortunate, depending on how you look at it as a child, to go through a very, very hard, traumatic experience. My parents were divorced when I was very young, and my mother was left with two children and in a very, very hard scenario. And the average human in America would have ended up on welfare where she was left. And she turned it into something that was an extremely successful accounting firm. She can't, she did it with nothing. We went, went to my grandparents' house every day after school because she was going to night school and working on Saturdays and Sundays. It was extremely hard on her and my family, but it was a horrible scenario to have to experience as a child. But it was also an amazing one to experience as a child. I was old enough to, to see it and witness what she was going through and how hard it was. And she's an amazing role model. And it's something that she need to look at and, and say, this is what I got. How do I maneuver around it to make for a better life or a better picture? And my only piece of advice I will say, and it's something that I, I use consistently, is I put myself in really difficult scenarios on my own that force me to make decisions that I would not have necessarily made from an emotional standpoint if I didn't have to, if that makes sense. I've always put myself in a scenario where I had a mortgage, like I, I leverage my, my finances constantly, right? And it, and it forces me to look at the scenario that I'm in and make a rational decision rather than an emotional one. And that's something that I, I found has gotten me through it all. And not through it all, obviously, emotionally, that's not necessarily healthy for a lot of people, but for me, it works. I do it, I say, okay, I, I took a mortgage out when I was 24 years old that it was entirely larger than I should have. It wasn't some you know, massive number, but it, like, like I could make the payment happen based on how much money I was making, but I couldn't go out drinking with the staff. I couldn't buy a Metro card. I had to ride my bike to work. I've always done that, where I put myself in a scenario where I said, okay, I have to make a decision based on where I put myself in my life, and that has allowed me and forced me to make better decisions, I think. Since our show is about relationships and why and how we love and that crosses over into food and hospitality, what did the ending, since we're talking about endings in this series, what did ending Alanda, closing Alanda, teach you about the best in people? That could be in, a, in your partner or staff or your clientele. What's maybe one thing that you remember that really made you feel comforted or proud in the relationships you were surrounded by while you were closing the restaurant? You know, I think it, I think it would have to be how many friends came support towards the end, right, or at the end, you know, on the, on the last day specifically, and, and how many people reached out and sort of said how much they, they appreciated and enjoyed the restaurant and they were sorry to see it go. Um, I think that that would be one of the more fulfilling moments that I, I, that happened. Um, but it, again, it's, it's it's closing a restaurant, and it's an emotional experience. It was hard, but I think that that was the most fulfilling that there was. And how many of those people were past employees? You know, something that that made me happy is how many past employees came back to see us on the last day, and how many past employees. I consider to be friends at this point. You know, it was never a, I always made, I've always made friends at the restaurants that I've worked in, right? But 
but this was different in the sense that I was the boss, and, and that the fact that there's so many of them that I can still consider to be friends, which is 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 really nice, you know. And, and I don't, I can't say that I've worked for a lot of people that I have walked away from and said like, they're, I'm going to still talk to them as, as my supervisors anyway. And I don't know whether that's my own insecurities or my own sort of, I don't, you know, I, the people that work under me or with me tend to like me, but I shouldn't say that, they don't tend to like me more, but I tend to build deeper relationships with those people than, than my, the people that are above me just by nature from, from a humility standpoint for me. So I, I was very proud of how many people I continue to, to talk to and, and how many of them ask me for support and advice, you know, moving on in, in their profession and their personal life. I, I think that's some, some of the most meaningful things about it and, and the most meaningful thing about the end, the end, I think, is how many of them still continue. You know, the, the original general manager reached out to me yesterday asking if I could use them as a reference, and the answer was obviously yes, but regardless of, but still, it, it's how many people continue to reach out and ask for advice and, and consider me to be influential in, in their career and, you know, yeah, that's it. So, Benjamin, we've now done six episodes on endings. Oh, God. Are, are they over yet? <laughs> are we done with this topic? I'm going to move to a slightly happier, slightly happier theme. So, speaking of happiness or moving away from endings, like, is there anything from the second half of Chris's interview or any takeaway from these six episodes that sort of is lingering with you right now? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what I took away from Chris here was that he talked about his ability to turn a negative into a positive. And I think that's a huge, huge tool and a big factor in being able to move forward in a productive way from any sort of ending. Where I actually disagree with Chris a little bit is that I don't think that that ability is necessarily something that is just ingrained at birth and you either have it or you don't. I think you know, people can listen to what Chris had to say and actually take that. And I think we can actually train our brains to kind of. Well, it's making a choice. It's just choosing to pick yourself back Absolutely. up. And, and anybody can, can be, do that. Yes. And it can be a very difficult choice. And that choice can come easier to some people than it does to right. others. Yeah. Um, but I think that we are capable of like teaching ourselves to make right. that choice. I think that's probably more of what he was saying is just some of us are more inclined to just do that. Absolutely. Maybe than others. Yeah, I think that's I think that's the greatest takeaway I think from all of these series on endings. Like thinking about Sari and the ladies discussing breakups because of chronic illness, thinking about the women from the Optimist Guide to Divorce, thinking about Jen Glance and yes. turning in a creative project. I think in general with endings, like it's about being brave and just moving on, like because we don't really have a choice but to move on, right? Absolutely. And growing from the experience, I think, right. is a huge part of it. And taking that growth and bringing it to whatever the next project right. or relationship or restaurant. And finding the is. successes amidst the failure in the breakup, in the illness, in the restaurant closing, in the turning in of the manuscript. What worked. Even with the endings, finding, yeah, what worked. Yeah. So, see, it's a positive. We, we took some positive things. Absolutely. From this, yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I'm glad we did this. I'm glad we did this. Oh, Mitra's glad we did this, too. Yay. Yay. 
Well, down the line, we are going to do a series on new beginnings, but our next series is on moderation. On not going balls to the wall with something, but on moderation. Do you in struggle life. with moderation, or are you good with moderation? I go back person? and forth. I think in some things I'm naturally a moderate person, but once I decide to do something, I go like, <laughs> like no social media for 40 days. Like I can't just be like, I'm going to cut back on something. I like cut it out. Yeah, like I just like decide to stop doing something and I do it. It's like if I'm going to quit something, I quit it. I'm not like I don't teeter out. Mm. And so our first two guests. First, we have uh, Sarah Rob O'Hagan. She is the CEO of Flywheel Sports, and she's got a book coming out. And then we're going to talk about moderating meat consumption. So not going like vegetarian or vegan, but again, just like pulling back. So we're going to do a couple shows in a row on. I'm, I you know why I came up with it? Love moderately. You think so? It's not, not love no, with Shakespeare. Shakespeare is yeah, the friar in Romeo and Juliet. Long, lo, love moderately, long love doth so. Yeah. Too swiftly arrives as tardy as too slow. True. I, yeah. You know, like if you run, to, if you're running too fast, you stumble. So the person who is like lust moderately is kind of what he means, I think. But I hear you. We will be back next week in the studio with Vitor and our guests. Thank you so much for joining us today and sticking with us these last few weeks as we've had these uh, somewhat wonky recordings, I would say. I think they've gone pretty well, though, right? I think you are a better engineer than you give yourself credit for, Miss Jacqueline. I think it's because I don't moderate with the (laughs) clipping of the Adobe Audition. Sure, you need some moderation techniques. I think I've spent far too many hours doing these. You have no idea. Anyway, so we're going to be back next week. Until then, uh, once again, we are not ending with our Give Love by Josh Dion, but with some more tunes from Robbie Gill. Please support his double vinyl album, and we will be back next week right here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Remember that it's who I adore. Kathy, please go.